0: Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26, last week and now again this week, it is the kind of text that can turn your life and death completely upside down. It's the kind of text Spurgeon had in mind when he said that there are some texts in the Bible that are so big that if the preacher did nothing but just repeat the text the whole sermon long, you'd have a great sermon. So we started working through it last week and we focused on verse 21. If you were here, you'll remember. Where Paul literally said in verse 21, to live Christ, to die gain. Is what he literally said. To live Christ To die, gain. And that was, that is a summary of Paul's outlook on life and death. William Hendrickson, the Bible commentator, he said death is gain for Paul because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. That was Paul's perspective. So this morning, the plan is to focus on Paul's dilemma and Paul's decision, which is described in verses 22 through 26. Paul has a dilemma in verses 23 22, sorry through 24. He's got a dilemma, something that he's thinking about, something that he is praying about, something he's wrestling with, something he's working out in his mind. He has a dilemma, and by verse 25, he is resolved with a decision. So here's what I would like you to do at the start of this sermon is to get a dilemma in your mind, a dilemma that you have today, uh, a struggle that you have today, a significant, maybe even insignificant to you choice, something that you're wrestling with, something that you're trying to figure out. Maybe there are warring desires in your mind. There's a a fork in the road in front of you. So get some kind of a dilemma, some kind of a struggle, some kind of a problem, if you have one, in your mind and keep it there as we work through these verses. It's not going to solve your dilemma, but you might be helped. So that's where we're headed today. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come before you with your word, we are anxious to have you speak to us. So would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word? We pray that our minds would understand Your Word, that our hearts would be affected by Your Word, that even our emotions would be caught up with You. God, if there is something in our life that is not pleasing to You, if there is something in our life that needs to change, would You make that evident to us today and then give us the grace and the strength to do it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 636. We'll be in verses 22 through 26. But as we look at verse 22, don't forget our context. Don't forget what Paul has been saying around what he is saying this morning. Don't forget what he has just said in verses 18 through 21. Namely, that though he is in prison, he's rejoicing. That's what he's just finished telling us. He's in prison, which is not usually an occasion for joy. For Paul... It is an occasion for joy. And he has told us why he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing because he knows that, number one, whether he is released from prison or he's executed, it is going to result in a deliverance for him. Either way, whether he's released or executed, Paul sees it as a deliverance from God. He'll either be delivered from the Roman authorities or he will be delivered from this difficult life. He also has joy, though, number two, because he knows that whether he is released or executed, Christ is going to be honored. That's what he's told us. So he's able to rejoice in prison. No matter what happens, he knows he's getting out. And no matter what happens, he knows that... Christ is going to be honored. And as well, he knows that in the meantime, before he knows whether he's going to live or die, he knows that in the meantime, he told us this in verses 12 through 18, through his preaching to the imperial guards, the gospel is savingly advancing out of his prison cell and all the way into the Roman emperor's home. So he's good. He has lots to be thankful for. He has lots to be grateful for. And so do we, always, if we're given the eyes to see it. So that's our context. Paul is rejoicing. And now we come to these verses, 22 through 26. We'll divide it up into two sections. We have Paul's dilemma in verses 22 through 24, and then Paul's decision in verse 25 and 26. So let's understand his dilemma. Here it is, verses 22 through 24. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's the dilemma. That is Paul's problem. That is the, the fork in Paul's road. Which way should I go? Should I go on living Or should I get on with dying? That's what he's thinking about in this prison. Should I go on living? Or should I get on with dying? Would that be a dilemma for you? Would that be a difficult decision? Would you have to think about it? As much as Paul thinks about it. It's a dilemma for Paul. Because of what he said in verse 21. Because of what he believes that he said in verse 21. For to me to live Christ. And to die gain. Which means for Paul. Life is good but heaven is better. To live Christ. To die gain. Life is good for Paul, but heaven is better. He's content with life. He has no complaint in this life, but heaven is far better. So he says in verses 22 and 23, which shall I choose? Which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. I mean, he's bringing us into his mind, right? He's reasoning out loud. He's reasoning on paper for us to see. We we get to see the inner working of his mind as he wrestles through this dilemma. He says, which shall I choose? And he's clearly talking about life or death. Now, we know this. We know that when Paul says, which shall I choose? And he's thinking about life or death. He doesn't mean the choice is mine. He doesn't mean that he is the the captain of his soul. He doesn't mean that he is the ultimate determiner of his destiny. He doesn't mean that God has come down to him and said, Hey, A or B, you tell me A, we go A. You tell me B, we go B. That's not what he means when he says, Which shall I choose? He knows that it is God's choice. Paul knows that God is sovereign, and Paul knows that it is God's choice whether he lives or dies. He's read the Bible. He knows that God has determined the number of every one of our days, including Paul. So he knows when that day is up. It's when God says it's up. What he he means is that a man still wrestles with, Thy will be done. Paul knows that God's will ultimately will be done, but he wants his will, he wants his desire to align with God's desire. He wants his will to align with God's will. He wants to take his desire, Paul's desire, and his will, and he wants that to be sketched out on a thin piece of paper, and he wants to lay that over God's will and God's desire, and he wants all the lines to match up. So when he says that, I don't know, life or death, which shall I choose? He's saying, what what will be best? Because I know that God will do what is best. So what is the the best road here? What what will he pursue? Paul is thinking. So what am I going to pursue? What am I going to pray for? He's going to pray for more than, God, your will be done. He wants to pray, God, do this because I see how this would be good and best. He wants to know what he will fight for, what will he work toward, what will be his ultimate desire is what Paul is thinking through. Will it be to go on living or will it be to get on with dying? That's what Paul is, he's working it out in his mind. So let's look more closely at these two options As Paul considers them, life and death. First, life. In verse 22, look with me. Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means to go on living, to be released from prison, to continue preaching the gospel. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Life for Paul, he has already told us, is Christ. His life is for Christ. So if he goes on living, if Paul goes on living for Christ, he will work, he will labor, and he knows that it'll be fruitful. He says, for me to go on living, it's going to mean fruitful labor. God will be glorified. He knows that. God will use me. I'll be his mouthpiece. The gospel will spread. Good fruit will be born. God will reflect his beauty in Paul. God will be the son and Paul will be One of many moons, reflecting the radiance, the beauty, the glory of God. He will work and it will be fruitful. Paul knows that because for him to live is Christ. He knows that others will be brought joy in Christ through his work, through his ministry. So Paul's perspective of life, it means, he says, fruitful labor. That's on one hand. Let's talk more. More than about life, about death. This is striking what Paul says. On the other hand, Paul has death. He uses the word death in verse 20. And then in verse 21, he says to die. So we know what Paul has in mind. We know what he's thinking about. He's thinking about that moment when his body will shut down and give up his spirit. That's what Paul has in mind. But look with me at verse 23. Look with me at verse 23 to understand death the way Paul does. Here's how we want to understand death, Christian. Christians, this is how we want to understand death. And the way the Christian views death is unlike anyone else views death. So, what does Paul say in verse 23? I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. See? Paul does not say, my desire is to die. That's not what he says. Look again at verse 23. Look at the words here. Paul does not say my desire is to die, even though that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Look at the context. He's talking about death. But that's not how he puts it. Not here. He doesn't say my desire is to die. For Paul, look at it. What is death? Death is a what? A departure. It's not an end. Death for Paul, it's a departure. He writes the same way about his death in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. He's imprisoned now. He doesn't know this, although by the end of our text today, he seems confident. But he will be released from this prison term. And he'll go and he'll continue to pastor and preach. He will be imprisoned a second time. And at the end of that imprisonment, he will be executed by Rome. He writes from that prison cell, which is a dungeon. And one of the letters he writes is 2 Timothy. And at the very end, so this is the end of Paul's life. And, and in that case, he knows it. So here's what he says at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Remember what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said before he was executed? This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning. For Paul, his death is a beginning. His death is a departure. So in 2 Timothy, he uses the word departure. And here in our text, he uses the word depart. So for Paul, to die is to depart. It is to leave the world. It is to leave the world and go where? He tells us more. In 2 Timothy 4, he just says, the time of my departure. But here, he tells us where he is going. So where is it? Where is the destination? If you're going to depart, you're headed somewhere. So where is the destination? Where is Paul going? Or the more accurate question would be, who is Paul's destination? It's not where is Paul's destination. It is who is Paul's destination. Because Paul does not say, My desire is to depart and go to heaven. He could say that, it would be true. He doesn't say, My desire is to depart and go to paradise. He could, but he doesn't. Paul says, and think about this with me, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Jesus is where Paul wants to be. More than he wants to be anywhere else. His destination is Christ. That's the ultimate stop. His life is serving Christ and his death is seeing Christ. Christ is everything to Paul. Hear this in Romans 14.8 when Paul says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Christ is Paul's ultimate destination. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. Not the wings, not the gold streets, Not even the absence of sin. Jesus, God, is what makes heaven, heaven. Think of it this way. Heaven would be hell without Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. What is heaven? Where is heaven? This is the best definition. Heaven is where Jesus is. That's where I want to be. That's where the Christian wants to be. We're trying to be with Jesus, commune with Jesus, abide in Jesus, be in His presence now every day. But we don't in this life see Him face to face. On that day, when we die, we will depart from this world and we will see Him face to face. Paul knows this and he wants to depart and see Jesus right now. I was talking with my little girl, Avery, the other night. She was, she was in her bed and we were doing our little bedtime routine And we started talking about heaven and what would be there. And while we were both looking forward to seeing unicorns and Nana, her more the unicorns than me, we both agreed that God would be the best thing there. Heaven is where Jesus is. So the Christian wants to be there. He's torn. He wants to be with Jesus more than anything. Maybe this illustration will help. When I return home after being away, I don't drive up get out of my car, and go hug and kiss the house. (laughs) That would be really weird. That is not what I do. When I get home, after being away, I drive up, I get out of the car, and I hug and kiss my wife and the kids. That's what I do. Home is made sweet or not made sweet by who is there. That's what makes home sweet. It's not the stuff. It's who is there. It's like this. We have something in our home with these words imprinted. Home is where mom is. That's true for us. Home is where mom is. In the same way, heaven is where Jesus is. That's what makes heaven heaven. Paul said, Death is gain. In Paul's mind, death is leaving one place, a good place. I mean, Paul says, fruitful labor. Death is leaving one place and arriving at another place, a better place. This is what C.S. Lewis, I think, was trying to get across at the very end of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, where he refers to death as a vacation. (laughs) He refers to death as a holiday. On the very last page of that book, Lucy is getting anxious because she is worried that Aslan is going to send them away again and send them back home and send them away from Aslan. And so this is what he says to her. There was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands dead to the world that sounds like an end that sounds sad but listen to the next line the term is over the holidays have begun the dream is ended this is the morning that's how a Christian views death The vacation is beginning. The holiday is beginning. The term is over. The dream is over. The ultimate reality sets in. And we will be with Christ. So death is a permanent holiday for Paul. He will leave one place and end up in the ultimate place. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, 25, and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So as I was working through this, at this point in my studies, something sort of switched in in my mind. And I wonder if the same thing happens for some of you. I think that our our understanding of Paul's dilemma changes as we read through this text. At first, I thought, and maybe we thought, at first I thought, there's no dilemma. Why would you choose death? I mean, who chooses death? Why would you choose that? You have so much, and I think I have so much to live for I have so much here that I love I have so much here that I enjoy why why would I want to choose death why would there be any dilemma but if we're tracking with Paul at this point we're saying Paul why is there a dilemma why would you choose life I mean if this is what death is it's the beginning of the holiday it's the beginning of the vacation and here you are, you've been beaten, you've been abused, you've been tortured. You're going to be executed. It's only a matter of time. You're under severe persecution. And yet in a moment, you could go and see Jesus face to face. What's the dilemma? What's the problem, Paul? Why <laughs> You have to think about that. Obviously, you're praying, God, take me. End this. I want to see you face to face. In Paul's own words, to die and depart, to be with Jesus, he said it in verse 23, is far better. Far better. Which are actually three words in the Greek. And it means much more better. If I said that, you'd you'd make fun of me. That's not proper grammar. Much more better. You get the point that Paul is making. He's saying going to be with Jesus is not even in the same ballpark as living on this earth. So that's his desire. So why is this a dilemma for Paul? Why is this a dilemma? If that, to be with Christ, is what Paul wants more than anything, why is he hard-pressed between them? The two. This reminded me of my dad before he died. My dad had fought long and hard. Fought cancer, heart disease, diabetes. But near the end, I mean, his body was just, it was done. Sickness over the years had had. Destroyed his body. But he had a, he had a desire and a, a strength to, to live. To continue loving his family and loving his church. But I'll never forget the day when he said, I'm done. The doctors kept telling him, there's, there's more that we can do. There's more that we can do. There's more that we can do came to a point where he was going to have to have one of his legs amputated. We could, we could get you more time. So take your leg and the poor circulation, the, the gangrene that's setting in, we can keep it from spreading, and, and who knows, maybe you'll get through this. And, and at first, he, he said, okay, let's do it. And he said, okay, let's do it because of all these sad eyes in the room that were looking at him. But when we said, no, Dad, what, what, do, you really, what do you really want? Well, can you guess what he wanted? I, I want to depart. He loved us, but he loved Jesus more. And he knew that to die was to depart and to go and be with Christ. And he did. So, Paul, if that's what you're facing, even more difficult circumstances than my father ever faced, why are we even thinking about this? Paul, ask them to pray for you. Ask the guards to pray for you. Why aren't you praying? Enough is enough. I've served my time. I want to depart and be with Christ. That's not it. So listen to his reasoning in verse 24. And we'll read it in context with the two verses before. So I'll read 22 through 24 and hear the complete argument that he makes. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but... To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now the dilemma in Paul's mind is made clear. It's made clear. On the one hand, to use his words, on the one hand, far better. And on the other hand, more necessary. Which shall I choose? Over here, far better. Over here, more necessary. This is inclination. This is responsibility. This is I want to. This is I need to. Far better, more necessary. Sometimes what you want to do and what you need to do are at odds with one another. When I was in this office here praying and preparing for this morning, my son Jackson walked in with a cinnamon roll. And he said, Dad, do you want this? There was no dilemma in my mind. To go and be with this donut is far better. Leave, leave the room, leave me alone with the cinnamon roll, and we shall enjoy one another. But I also knew that it was more necessary that I not eat that donut. It wasn't going to be good for me. It, I, my mind would not work well when I was up here. Sugar, especially that kind of sugar, on an empty stomach, messes me up. But I wanted to. The donut was far better. That was my inclination. But my sense of responsibility said, no, you should not eat that donut. The donut won, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I put that donut to death. I mortified that thing. (laughs) So think about it. So think about it. Paul, he is not sure what to... I think this is a way to look at it. Paul is not sure what what to pray for because he loves God and he loves the Philippians. I mean, what a dilemma. We need more dilemmas like this. He's not sure what to pray for because he loves God so much and he loves the Philippians so much. I mean, really, he has a problem because Jesus said in Matthew 22. Here's the root of his dilemma. Jesus said in Matthew 22, you've heard this, The great and first commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the heading over every one of your duties as a Christian. That's it right there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Jesus boiled down the entire law into that heading. And that, that command to love God and to love others, has Paul in a pickle. It goes like this. That verse in Matthew 22 says again, The great and first commandment is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so Paul wants to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it is more necessary for the Philippians... That Paul remain in the flesh. So he has a dilemma. That is a good Christian dilemma. The struggle that comes from looking at a fork in your road and asking, How do I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself with this decision? That is a good Christian dilemma. So that's Paul's dilemma. He desires to depart, to die, and be with Christ, but he feels it is more necessary for the Philippians, for him to remain in the flesh. So what will he choose? Is he going to choose death? Or is he going to choose life? Of course, Paul, we already said this, he knows and affirms that it is God's decision, but but, 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 but what is Paul going to long for? What is Paul going to desire? He wants it to line up with God's desires. What is God's will for him in this situation? What is he going to pray for? What is he going to resist or not resist? He's hard pressed. The King James Version says he is in a, sta- a straight betwixt two. The NIV says he is torn between the two. So which will he choose? Well, he gives his answer. He gives his answer in verse 25 and 26. Here is Paul's decision. That was his dilemma. Now here's his decision. Here is what Paul is resolved to do. Convinced of this. In other words, convinced of verse 24. That it is more necessary for the Philippians that he live. Convinced of this, I know That I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, Paul's committed to fight, he's committed to live, he's committed to stay but not because he's afraid of what's on the other side. That's usually in this life why a non-believer is committed to fighting, is committed to life, is committed to staying, is committed to pushing away the darkness. Is because of their fear. Because they think it's an end. That's not Paul. Paul is making this decision to fight, to remain, to live. Because he loves this little church in Philippi so much. And he's convinced that it would be better for them that he be released and come to see them again. If Paul gets out He's going to the Philippians and his life of preaching and pastoring will result, what does he say, in their progress and joy in the faith. That's the fruitful labor that he mentioned back in verse 22. So he wants to get out. He wants to get out to go and be with the Philippians. Preach, pastor, for... Their progress and joy in the faith. This is a pastor's heart. That's a pastor's heart. That's a shepherd's heart. That is, at the end of the day, an elder's heart. Paul has a pastor's heart. This is what he desires for his people. Their progress And joy in the faith. That sums up my desire for all of you: your progress and joy in the faith. Not just progress and joy, progress and joy in the faith. There's no progress without faith, there is no joy without faith. There is no faith according to Romans 10:17 without hearing the word of God. So Paul's desire, his inclination is clearly to depart and be with Christ, but then the sense of responsibility kicks in and his love for the Philippians kicks in and it has him praying for his own release, which is going to mean more persecution. Which is going to mean more hardship, probably more abuse, more beatings, more torture, and still the inevitable end, his execution. But he loves the Philippians. And he is convinced that it is more necessary for them that he remain a while longer. Now, finally, look at verse 26. Paul will come to them again and here is what will happen. They, in Paul, will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. That's very simple. If He comes to them again, they will praise Jesus. If they see Him again, which they long for, They will praise God. For Paul, that's worth it. For them to love Jesus more, for them to be thankful more, to be even more grateful, to praise Jesus, it's worth it for Paul. So let's wrap this up. In conclusion, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. Question number one. Whose progress and joy are you living for? Whose progress and joy are you living for? At the end of the day, right, Paul, he is going to go on living for the progress and joy of the Philippians. Though it is his desire an inclination to depart and be with Christ. So, whose progress and joy are you living for? Are you living for your own progress? And your own joy? Are you living for your wife's progress and joy? Are you living for your husband's progress and joy? Are you living for your son's progress and joy or all your sons' progress and joy or your daughter or your daughter's progress and joy? Are you living for the progress and joy of others? Are you living for the progress and joy of your church family? Look around. Are you living for their progress and joy? Are you living for his progress and joy? Are you living for her progress and joy? Children, children, whose progress and joy are you living for? You can live for your parents' joy. You can live, if you have siblings, for your big brother's joy, for your little brother's joy for your big sister's joy, for your little sister's joy? Or children, will you live for your joy? Will you give up what you want for what others want? It feels like we're hardwired in a certain direction, doesn't it? Some of you can remember a day when it was worse maybe than it is today, but almost a hard wiring to live for my progress and and my name and my desires and my success and my accomplishments and my peace of mind and my happiness and my joy, and you're all here to serve that. And if you, don't, if you don't fit and you don't support that, then I don't want you in my life. So again, whose progress and joy are you living for? Are you living for your own progress and joy? Or are you living for the progress and joy of others? You will find if you live for your own joy, you will be the most miserable. The secret to joy is not getting what you want. The secret to joy is honoring God. That's Paul's commitment. And so he writes and is longing for the progress and joy of the Philippians. Second question, how will you solve your dilemma? I don't know if you kept the dilemma in your mind Maybe it's in the back. Bring it to the forward again. What dilemma are you facing? What sort of decision are you trying to make right now or you'll be needing to make in the very near future? What kind of choices? What sort of wrestling is going on with your mind? You're weighing the scale. You're making a list of positives and negatives and trying to figure out how do I do this? What is the right decision? What is the right choice? And maybe you've been taught strange mystical secrets that are not helpful. Maybe you're waiting for God to break through outside of His written word and give you a very clear and audible and distinct voice to direct you. And this is not how God operates. This is not how God works. He has given you His word. He has given you His written word. And He will, by His Holy Spirit, guide and direct you. But according to this word... So what in this text today helps us as we try to solve our dilemmas? On the one hand, there's something you want, and on the other hand, there's something you want. Is one more necessary for those you love? This doesn't fix every dilemma. I said that. But if we're strictly in our text, this can be very helpful. Is one more necessary for those you love? Maybe even what you want, like in Paul's case, is a good thing. It's not like Paul wants something wicked to go and be with Christ. That's a great desire. Maybe you have two desires. They're both good desires. You could see how God could be honored in both of them. Nothing is sinful here. Maybe you want, as in Paul's case, something good. Maybe it's even a spiritually good thing. But maybe there is something else. Maybe there is something else more necessary for you to do. If so, you should change your course. You should reevaluate your plan. You should change direction and your pursuit. Is there something more necessary for your family? Is there something you desire? But there is something for some of you that is more necessary for your wife? Is there something more necessary for your children? Is there something more necessary for your ministry? Is there something more necessary for the good and advancement of the gospel? Is there something that is more necessary, though your inclination is to do something else. If you're here and you've lived selfishly and there is conviction settling in, Because you're not considering others even close to how Paul is considering others. And you're not willing to give up for others. You struggle with being selfless. And you are at the center and God is not at the center. If you are convicted this morning, ask God to forgive you. Ask him to put it away. Ask him to not hold it against you. Ask him to remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. If you will ask him to forgive you, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins, Christian. As well, maybe you need to seek forgiveness from someone else. If you've lived selfishly and there are people in your life today who have been on the receiving end of your selfishness, you should seek their forgiveness. Listen, I have sinned against you. I I am not considering you the way that I should. And I've been convicted by that. Will you please forgive me? Will you please not hold this against me? Will you please commit to not letting this stand between us? Will you please let this go? You should seek the forgiveness of others. And then finally, consider what you should do. You've got this dilemma. Consider what you should do. And then pray. And ask God to give you the grace and the strength to do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word that you've given us. God, our, our time of preaching and listening to preaching is over this morning. But God, we would ask that our time of being convicted or encouraged or challenged, or inspired by you, would not be over. God, we pray that these words would linger in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that you would use your word like a sword, God. That it would pierce deeply. That you would show us even our desires and our motives our sin. Expose it, God, so that we can turn from our sin and turn to you again. Father in heaven, if there are people here this morning who have not ever trusted you for their salvation. God, we ask that you would open their eyes and ears so that they would see and hear the good news that You have sent Your Son, Jesus, to live, to suffer, to die, to be raised back from death in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to You. God impressed that truth as deeply as it will go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.